This morning, I welcome you to open with me to the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to John. As we prepare to read uh, from this text, we're going to be covering the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. And I think you'll find it helpful to have your Bible open in your lap as I walk us through uh, this passage in its entirety. As I said last week, few influences have the power to really shape our lives like a great question does. We might forget the content of the movies we've seen. We might let slip out of our minds the uh, several points in the last sermon or the last book that we came across. We may ignore somebody else's opinion or their advice. We can manage to shut out constructive criticism or bypass common wisdom, but a well-aimed question will affect us differently. Isn't that true? A well-aimed question will stay with us. It will get under our skin. It will travel with us wherever we go. It will become a seed that can just start to grow and over time can even alter our life. I think this is why when Jesus really wanted to dig deeply into the soil of somebody else's soul, he did not often give them a to-do list to think about. He did not offer them a theological lecture at that moment. Instead, Jesus would most often simply pose a powerful question, a great question. And we began to see this illustrated last week as we looked together at the story of James and John, when Jesus asks them, what do you want? What do you really want? It's the kind of question that makes you stop in your tracks and really think, what is it that I really desire? Is it actually the want or the wish list that immediately comes to mind or that occupies my thinking so much of the time? Or or is there a deeper desire in me? Is there something deeper down that I really need that maybe lies buried or that I've somehow forgotten? Something that it will take God to address. What do you want? Asked Jesus. Today we're going to look at another one of the great questions asked by our Lord. The scene unfolds in John chapter 8, but a crucial bit of the context is actually supplied for us in John chapter 7. So I want to page back to that for a moment, if I may. Jesus had spent the day before the encounter that we're going to study in conversation with a group of people in the teaching, uh, teaching them in the courtyard next to the great temple of Jerusalem. Jesus had thrown the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who were there at that time into an absolute hissy fit as they listened to them. He had done so by claiming that he had come as the answer to the deepest thirsts and desires of humankind. Jesus had said, in effect, come to me and you'll find the answer. Don't come to the religious regulations. Don't come to the temple building. Don't come to the great traditions. That's not where the answer will ultimately be found, though it may be uh, pointed to by these things. Jesus said, come to me and I will fill you up to overflowing with the life and the love of God. Come to me, all you who thirst, and I will give you to drink, said Jesus. What made matters worse from the vantage point of the religious leaders was that people were actually taking Jesus up on the invitation. They were starting to believe in him. Jesus had done all of these miraculous acts of healing. 
Jesus was speaking with a clarity and with a power that was greater than any of the authority they encountered from their most educated Jewish leaders. There was a there was a presence and a a persona, an influence in the person of Jesus that was making even non-religious people, the kind that hardly ever showed up at the temple, thirsty to get closer to him. And people were starting to say, this man is the prophet that the, Old Te- that the scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, had told us about. This is the prophet that's going to come ahead of the long-awaited Messiah. And others had already made the leap beyond that. No, no, no. He is the Christ. He's the Christ himself. And even Nicodemus, one of the most respected of the Jewish ruling council of the city, was now seeking Jesus out by night because Nicodemus had started to believe. John chapter 8 opens up by telling us that at the end of that Very tumultuous day. Jesus left the city. He went down into the valley opposite the city of Jerusalem, up on the hillside known as the Mount of Olives to spend the night in one of the villages there, as was his custom when he went to Jerusalem. At dawn, however, the scriptures say, he appears again in the temple courts. And all of the people gather around him as before. And he sat down to teach them. It is here that the stakes get even higher. And the conflict between Jesus and the teachers who are threatened by him gets even hotter. And suddenly, another player gets drawn into the drama. The Bible says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they made her stand right there before the group. Now, we do not know this woman's backstory. The Bible doesn't give us really any more information than that she'd been caught in adultery. I suppose it is possible that there were extenuating circumstances that might have painted her in a more charitable light. Maybe she'd been subject to a lifetime of abuse and abandonment and had become a tramp out of desperation. In a church that I served formerly years ago, there sang in the choir every single week a woman whose life story, if anybody had known it, would have broken their heart. She had been through so much pain. And what nobody would have ever expected as they watched her sing, her her face lit up by joy, tears often in her eyes on those Sunday mornings, is that still there were nights when she would leave the city and go to a neighboring city and sell her body on the street to feed her children. Maybe, maybe this woman that was brought into the temple court that day had a story like that. I don't know. Maybe she was the more common variety of person. Perhaps she was Someone who had become simply profoundly lonely or had become so insecure in herself. The kind of person that exists in many places who find comfort in the advances of someone who is not their spouse, who step out of their own marriage or into somebody else's marriage, failing to count the cost. 
failing to count the damage that they will do. Perhaps she was one of those people who actually no longer saw any kind of moral boundaries whatsoever, at least not when it came to sex and maybe other areas as well. And so now she was just jumping over all kinds of lines into bed with this person and that person, each time leaving something behind on the deli slicer of the soul. Increasingly less of her capable of intimacy or really understanding wreckage of her life and that she was propagating in others. We just do not know. The Bible does not say. But whatever the backstory, this much is very clear. This woman had been found out. This woman had been caught. She'd been discovered, at least for something of her offenses, and she had been dragged into the center of the lobby of the church right, into the temple courtyard. And she now stood trembling in shame before all of those eyes that now looked at her with either prurient interest or absolute repulsion and disgust. And she listened as the most powerful people in her community accused her and condemned her for what she had done and what she had become and what she knew she had become. Teacher, the Pharisees said to the famous rabbi who was also standing there, this woman, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? I remarked last week that there are all kinds of questions in life. There are stupid questions, serious questions, perennial questions, good questions. But this thing that the Pharisees, the religious leaders are asking of Jesus, this falls into the category of trick questions. This is a trick question. Why is that? Well, for one thing, though it is apparently asked sincerely, we know that the religious leaders are not asking it because they really think they need Jesus' help in answering it. We know from the storyline that leads up to this particular point in the Bible that the Pharisees and religious leaders do not respect the opinion of Jesus. We know that they do not need him in order to exact the punishment that is specified in the Mosaic law. Although if you go home this afternoon, you want some interesting reading, although it is only for mature audiences, Deuteronomy chapter 22 will tell you a lot that bears on this particular case. And you will see that the law actually is quite a bit more discerning and even-handed than the Pharisees here portray. The Pharisees here don't care about seeing the right Thing done, though they appear to, to be very caring about this, because if they had been caring about that, then the man who had been tangoing with this woman, he'd be there in the middle of a court too. Because that is what the Mosaic law required. It took two to tango. The point is that these religious leaders, 
are not actually in the justice discernment business at all. They are in a far older business. They are in the condemnation business. That's that's the character of the religious leaders that gather there that day. They are the sort of people maybe we have met in our own life experience, maybe we have sometimes been ourselves, who are very expert at grading the seriousness of sin. They put at the top of the serious sin list those particular issues with which they don't particularly struggle themselves or with which they do secretly struggle and they're working like crazy to try and push away. And they put down at the bottom of the serious sin list those things with which they actually do very regularly struggle, casually struggle, and lose the struggle. Things like pride and envy and gossip and anger and apathy towards the poor. This is at the bottom of the list. Sexual sins, grand theft, larceny, mugging. These are at the top of the list. They've ranked the importance of sin. And this approach they find leaves them feeling quietly superior to others or in a position to openly condemn others for not making the mark. And they are doing this all throughout Israelite society until Jesus comes along. Jesus, you see, takes all of this stuff, all of this stuff, the whole spectrum of human brokenness, sinfulness, rebellion. He takes all of it very seriously. He knows all of the different sorts of ways that our heart and our character gets disfigured. Jesus knows the various rackets that we have for hiding this stuff from ourselves or from other people. Jesus is actually hardest on those of us who do not admit the reality of what's going on in our own hearts, in our own lives. He's the hardest on those who play the superiority or the condemnation game. The only people Jesus ever gets angry at in the scriptures are those playing the superiority and condemnation game, right? It's the only only group we ever see him just losing his temper with. And this is why he was so hard on these Pharisees, and this is why they had determined they had to get rid of him. They had to get rid of him. They had already decided that this woman was condemnable, and they had figured out now how they could use her to get Jesus condemned too. You see, if Jesus counseled mercy towards the woman, then he would be publicly contradicting Moses. I mean, the greatest lawgiver in Jewish history, Jesus would prove, he would out himself as thinking himself better than Moses. And if, on the other hand, Jesus counseled that they go ahead and stone her, then he would lose favor with the common people who saw him as a welcome contrast to the harshness of their religious leaders. In other words, there was just no apparent answer Jesus could offer to their question and not look bad. John 8, verse 6, confirms this by saying, and I 
quote, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. It was a trick question. So what did Jesus say? Do you remember? Some of you are nodding. Some of you will recall that at first, he didn't say a thing. He didn't dignify the question with a response at first. What did he do? The Bible says he stooped down and began writing in the dust with his finger. Was he just killing time? Was he just letting the suspense build? Was he writing out the names of some of the people in the crowd who had actually been with this woman? Was he writing out the verse of uh, some scripture about the importance of grace or self-examination? Was, that, was he doing that? We don't know. I have a theory. It'll be in the written version of this sermon if you want to get it online or pick it up at the literature rack. It'll be in the notes. No time for it now. What seems more important for us at this moment is what we actually know for certain because the text lays it out. When they kept on questioning him, the Bible says, Jesus straightened up from where he'd been stooped down and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Whoever of you is without sin, what? Cast the first stone. And at this, the Bible says, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. You notice that? Why is that? Longer list. Not that hard if I really stop to think about it. To find something that I wouldn't want exposed. In a recent Lenten devotion that came across my desk, Ruth Haley Barton, a good friend of this church, described a passage in Kathleen Norris's marvelous book, Amazing Grace. In this book, Norris tells the story of working at a parochial school where she was teaching kids how to write poetry uh, after the model of the biblical Psalms. And one little boy penned a poem that was cutely entitled, The Monster Who Was Sorry. (laughs) The boy began by admitting that he hates it when his father yells at him. His response in the poem is to throw his sister down the stairs and then to wreck his room and finally to wreck the whole town. The poem concludes, I quote, Then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done all that. The story, I think, is an instructive one, especially when coupled with the words of Jesus here. 
Like the little boy in Kathleen Norris's book, a lot of us have grown up in an environment, I bet, where someone or someones did a lot of yelling. They yelled with a voice of condemnation, although maybe they didn't recognize it as such. Author Wynn Collier suggests that if you think about it, much of our world actually runs on condemnation. Parents discover their kids' behavior can often be modified with the threat, implicit or not, of mom or dad's emotional withdrawal and disapproval. Ouch, I know that's true. I know I've done that as a parent. Our culture's consumerist enterprise, writes Collier, pushes his agenda on us with this steady stream of what are literally little more than veiled, advertised condemnations. They judge us on our overly large or skinny or flat or pimply body, judging our old car, judging our outdated clothes, judging our cheap vacation. It's sad that the church, writes Collier, sometimes chimes in as well, do more, be more. God sees you. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? One wonders if our whole world would gulp and misfire and grind to a knocking halt, writes Collier, if it ever ran out of the fuel that condemnation provides. The cumulative effect of these demands, the piled up effect of these judgments, these voices, these hammers on our soul, break human beings down. They do. We didn't start this way. They break us down. Till in time, some of us become lawless, like the adulterous woman woman in the story. We're just basically saying, you know, to this world that's always judging us, we're going to make our own rules. Or we become, like the Pharisees, law bangers. We're going to get this world under control. We're going to work out our anger, our hurt, our frustration. And so in either fashion, in fits of passion or of false piety, we throw other people down the stairs in other, in various ways. And in fact, we become so accomplished and familiar with it, we hardly even notice the sound. The sound just becomes one of the noises of life. Boom, 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 boom. Another person in our family, in our circle of relationship that's been thrown down the stairs. We wreak havoc on the room of our own heart or our own home. We may even send out shockwaves from our broken character that do damage in the town around us, though there are so many other damaged people, it's hard to tell. This is the world, the broken world of sin the Bible talks about. We live in. And sometimes we're just so embedded in this way of being, we've gotten so used to this way of coping that we do not see what we're doing to our others or to ourselves. We're mostly conscious of how other people seem to be blowing it so much and how much condemnation they deserve for their bad acting. And then one day, maybe, maybe one day God finds us. And he brings us to our senses. And like the child in the story, and maybe more often like the older ones in the temple crowd, wisdom and humility, at least some of it, settles down upon us in a deeper way. And we look around our messy house, and we suddenly feel in the depths of our being, oh, 
I am not without sin. And oh, I shouldn't have done all this. I shouldn't have. I am, I am such a monster. And the grip that we have had on the stones, that we have been lofting and using to pelt other people with who are at that part of the sin list that we don't think is anything like us. Then we suddenly turn around and we take those stones and we start pounding ourselves maybe. But this doesn't fix things either. Whether they come from the outside of us or the inside of us, what we need to understand, writes Collier, is that these shrill, incessant voices that have been heaping such heavy loads of condemnation on us are actually liars. God never piles on shame. God never assaults personhood. God never speaks with hopelessness and despair of human beings. Oh God, don't get me wrong. God will instruct. God will correct. God will admonish and exhort. God will tell us the truth, even if it hurts us. God will do whatever is required to get our attention, to bring us to our senses, to make us remember our true and powerful and beautiful name. But God never heaps condemnation on us, writes Collier. This is the devil's work. This is the devil's work. This is how condemnation, evil, gains a foothold with us. It speaks to us a half-truth. It makes us aware of part of our condition. It tells us that we are sinful, broken, messed up creatures. And that's true. That's true. But it leaves us believing there's no way out of that mess. Save by hating ourselves more or somehow whipping ourselves or other people into perfect, into a, some kind of new kind of perfection or worthy shape. And it's a kind of penance or punishment that ultimately fails. What we must come to see if we are to get well, this is the gospel, is that our sin is not the whole of our condition. It is just half of the truth. The other half, the other half, the luminous half is that we have a Savior, as Dr. Kreider said so often from this pulpit, whose grace is sufficient for all our needs. It is. God is not surprised when we're hauled into the middle of the circle. God is not surprised by our wretched failures. God is not repulsed by our inability to get out of this messy house all by ourselves. Jesus did not come to this earth in order to whip us into shape and then forgive us. He came to forgive us and then to fill us with the spirit of God that enables us to get up from the dust. And become who we were created to be. It has been said. And I'm almost at a close. So stay with me. 
it has been rightly said that repentance is not so much looking at the past and saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Though that's part of it. But it is not so much that as it is looking at the future that Jesus Christ makes possible and saying, wow, can that really be? Could I be like that? Can I start again? To which Jesus says an unambiguous, irrevocable, yes. Yes, with me you can. And that's why the story in John 8 ends the way it does. By now you see the temple courtyard is quiet. Only Jesus was left, the Bible says, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus, who's bent down once again to the ground, now stands up to his full height once more. And he asks her, Woman, where are they? Where are they, your accusers? Has no one, has no one felt right in staying behind to condemn you? No one, sir. She replies in shock and amazement. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now. Go now. And leave your life of sin. Walk into that new life for which you're created and for which I can make you a new creation. Go forth and live. Who condemns you? Who condemns you? It's a great question that Jesus asks. Who are the voices that have lied to you? Telling you that you're all mess with no hope. Save how you can punish or perfect yourself. Friends, that, says Jesus, is just the thief talking. But my sheep, they know my voice. They know that there's a greater gospel, a greater grace, a greater hope than the thief will ever tell you. For I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. This, my beloved, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.